0: Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast on this unseasonably chilly May Day in D.C., where unlike the manager of Donald Trump's re-election campaign, we do not willingly compare ourselves to a fully operational Death Star. Personally, I think we're more like an A-Wing, fast and nimble. I'm Alex Roy, a political correspondent for McClatchy, coming to you from my home in the heart of the District of Columbia. Today, I'm ecstatic to be joined by Francesca Chambers. One of McClacky's talented White House reporters and someone who, in an email to me yesterday, said she now considers herself a bubbler. Francesca, welcome. I was honored for you to use that term.
1: I also said I would always be here when you have the great Brian Murphy. <laughs> 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 wow.
0: Well, without further ado, we are thrilled to welcome to the show Brian Murphy, Washington correspondent for our North Carolina newspapers. Murph, it's been a long time coming to have you on the bubble Welcome.
2: Thank you. Is, is this where I have to do my best, Mike Pence, and, and shower the host of this with praise? It was expected. <laughs>
0: now that you've said it, I feel like it, it, it's not quite as effective. But I just want you to know when we have you back on future shows that you need to do that without mentioning the necessity
2: oh, of
1: doing that. Well, oh, it's just well, a normal day at the office. Right. I'm honored me, to so. be here
2: with with both Francesca and our extremely talented, good looking, debonair host,
0: Alex. Murph, you're, you're already off to a rocky <laughs> start. I don't, I don't, I don't want to, to to put you off your game, but we're already off to a rocky Uh-oh. start. Here. So, coming up, we are dedicating this episode to the Tar Heel State. After all, it's where Republicans are holding their convention, or at least so they say, even amid the pandemic. And North Carolina also may very well be the tipping point state in a closely watched battle for control of the Senate as Democrats try to win not just the presidency, but a majority stake in that legislative body. But first, we are going to talk about Donald Trump, the presidential campaign, and a state that might or might not be a top tier presidential battleground. North Carolina has confounded national Democrats and delighted Republicans for more than a decade now. When Barack Obama won there in 2008, it was supposed to herald a new political era for the state, part of a new South whose demographic changes were paving the way for an era of Democratic advantage, if not dominance. Then reality interceded. The GOP swept to victories two years later in 2010, held ironclad control of the state legislature ever since, and won a pair of elections in the state, first Mitt Romney in 2012 and Donald Trump in 2016. This, despite Hillary Clinton competing hard there during the last presidential election, her last campaign event, if you might remember, was in Raleigh. That hasn't stopped the state, however, from receiving plenty of attention from many Democrats this year, especially as we approach the general election. And my question to you, Brian Murphy, our North Carolina expert, is whether or not Democrats should really have any hope or optimism that this election can be different, or if Republicans can once again breathe a sigh of relief that the state is going to remain red.
2: I think, you know, Democrats certainly hope so. They certainly hope that it is a battleground state. The way that both Republicans and Democrats are pouring money into the state, and that's at the Senate level and and the presidential level. Trump's, you know, America First Action Pack is putting $8 million into North Carolina, which is, it's about half as much as he's putting into Florida, but more than they're putting into Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, at least initially. So I, I think people do think it's going to be close. You know, all those things that you just rattled off are are 100 percent correct. But in 2016, there was a Democratic governor elected. There was a Democratic attorney general elected. Democrats control the Supreme Court in North Carolina. And in 2018, they broke, Democrats broke those super majorities that Republicans held, um, largely by winning a lot of suburban seats in Wake County and Mecklenburg County. And so now Republicans do not have veto proof majorities. In, in either chamber in North Carolina, which is one reason that the state doesn't have a budget. So as much as it has been, you know, it went for Donald Trump by about three and a half points. It went for Mitt Romney by about two points. And it went for Barack Obama by less than a ha- half a point. So it is seeming on the presidential level to trend Republican. But then you have these other statewide races that are, are going Democratic. So I think that's why people think, you know, that it, it is a true battleground.
0: You know, I, to put it in context, I think in, in terms of the national picture here. And we talked about this a little bit last week on the show. Right now, there are six top battlegrounds, right? It's the three in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, and then North Carolina. I think a lot of people would consider that the top six, and they would include North Carolina in that mix. However, I think there would also be agreement that of those six, a lot of people see North Carolina as the least likely to flip to the Democrats in in 2020. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, Merck, if we could take a step back here just for a moment. One of the reasons, I mean, North Carolina is a fascinating political state for, for a lot of reasons, but one of the, the reasons it's attracted a lot of interest from Democrats and Republicans alike over the last decade is it has just a lot of different demographic groups that are kind of almost representative of the whole country. Take us through a little bit of that and and why at least seemingly the Democrats have have, have said that because of these demographics. That they will eventually start winning consistently in a state like this.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people see it as, you know, the next Virginia. Uh, Virginia is a mid Atlantic state, you know, a na- nor- neighbor to the north and it has flipped to be solidly blue state. There's a, at least a, a school of thought that North Carolina is next and then perhaps Georgia down the line. And part of that is because the, the metropolitan areas of Wake County, which is where Raleigh is and Mecklenburg County, which is where Charlotte is are growing exponentially. The state has about 10 and a half million people. More than two and a half million people live in those two counties. So about twenty percent of the state's population lives in two counties that are overwhelmingly blue. At least the hearts of them, Raleigh and Charlotte, are. Then you also have you know a, a statewide university system that has campuses in in all kinds of cities across the state, and that means. Those pockets tend to be very blue as well. You look at a place like Asheville, not only does it have a university, but it, it's attracted lots of tourists. Lots of people have moved to Asheville for quality of life. In, in a sea of red in uh, Western North Carolina, Asheville stands out as, as a blue place. There are big HBCUs in both Winston-Salem and Greensboro. Other cities that are growing, you know, as rural North Carolina loses some of its population, the cities are growing, and I think that's why Democrats are so positive. There's a a large African American population, um, somewhere around 15% of the state. There is a small pocket of Native American population, uh, particularly in the southern part of the state, which had traditionally been a Democratic group. In 2018, they actually flipped and and helped keep North Carolina nine, where there was a special election. In Republican hands, so that's an interesting group to watch. The Lumbee Indians uh, down there in Roberson County, and then you also have you know you have a big beach community, you know, and, and parts of that are very blue and, and around Wilmington area, but but much of the coastal area is is a solidly Republican part of the state.
0: Let me, let me stop you there for a second because so much of what you were just talking about these these growing urban suburban areas and large African American population. I mean, look, this is the reason the Democrats have been so optimistic about North Carolina, but for the last 10 or 12 years, with some exceptions, for the last 10 or 12 years, Republicans have had a good run of it. Why, why is that? What is, what is going right for the GOP in spite of all
2: this? Well, one thing that happened is, you know, some of the African American vote was down and then Trump really ran up the margins in the rural parts of the state. So the, the red parts of the state, and this was, this was symbolic of what happened all across the country. The red part of the states got redder the red part of north carolina got much redder and so he was able to to turn up his electorate in in those parts and and the blue parts of the state while they got bluer they didn't necessarily turn out quite as many people as they had for barack obama one reason i think and i've i've talked to francesca about this one reason i think it'll be interesting to see who joe biden picks as his running mate does he pick someone with a with an eye toward the midwest one of those governors or a senator from the midwest or does he pick someone to help maybe turn out African-American voters like Kamala Harris, in theory, to try to win a state like North Carolina. So I think there are a lot of dynamics in place in North Carolina. You know, Democrats and I think Republicans would feel the same way, that this is a state that's supposed to flip, right? At some point, North Carolina is supposed to flip to Democrats, yet Republicans continue to win it. And I think they point to that as saying, hey, you know, our grip on this state is not as loose as you seem to think it
0: is. You know, Francesca, this is a state that Donald Trump absolutely has to win. There is no scenario where Trump loses North Carolina, but manages to somehow win reelection in November. How seriously do you think the Trump campaign is taking this race? How seriously do you think the, the rest of the GOP is?
1: So two things. Uh, I want to respond to what Brian said before, which by the way, our private phone conversations are basically exactly what we're talking (laughs) about right now. They're not really that exciting. We basically sit around and we talk on the phone about the vice presidential running mate search. So I think, Brian, you had made a really great point the other day, though, when we had that conversation about Joe Biden and how if you're Joe Biden and you're looking at someone like Amy Klobuchar, what would be the reason you would you would pick her specifically? Well, because you want to be able to win white working class voters in the Midwest. But Joe Biden, who uh, hails from Scranton, if he can't already do that all on his own, he probably has a lot bigger problems than just a couple states in, in the Midwest. So if you're you're looking if you're him and you're, you're trying to find like who that person would be, there certainly need to be someone who brings something to the table and it would be, have to be something that, that Joe Biden doesn't have already. So that is why there are a lot of people think that he's looking towards a Stacey Abrams. <laughs> I won't go into Georgia today. We love talking about Georgia. I won't do the Georgia thing today. But that is why people think he's looking at Stacey Abrams and that he's looking at a Kamala Harris because he could send them into those urban areas that you, you just spoke about in states like North Carolina, in states like Georgia, and uh, try to turn out some more of those those types of voters who have been trending, turning out more for Democrats in recent years, but have not quite turned out at the levels, as you noted, that they would need to to flip those states to Democrats.
0: We can't go an episode without talking about the beefsteaks. It's just a a rule for political reporters that no matter what the discussion is, we have to spend at least a few minutes talking about Joe Biden's potential running mates. Not to interrupt you, Francesca, because people love talking about it.
1: But it is 100% related to part two of what you asked me, which is how concerned is the Trump campaign about a state like North Carolina? Well, I think you certainly have to be more concerned about some of these states depending on who Joe Biden puts on his ticket and whether they're the type of they're the type of person that can energize certain you know demographic groups of voters in those states. So that's number one. But number two, North Carolina, the Trump campaign has told me from the very beginning that they never took staffers out of North Carolina since the 2016 election, that they have had a consistent presence there because they recognize that it's a state that did, again, go for Barack Obama and then flipped. And they certainly want to keep it in that in that column, but I do think it is part of a broader a broader problem for them is if you lose North Carolina, the reasons you would lose North Carolina are the same reasons that you would lose other battleground states that they need to win. I,
2: I will just say that if the polling is in Joe Biden's favor, 14 of the 18 polls conducted since January show Biden leading, you know, polling at this point in time certainly is not determinative, but there is reason for the optimism on the Democratic side and maybe some pessimism on the Trump side, or at least a recognition on the Trump side that North Carolina is going to be a hard-fought state?
0: Polling nationally right now is not going well for Trump. If that hasn't been clear. It was made very clear this week in a slew of polls that showed his standing getting worse, at least in head-to-head matchups with, with Joe Biden. Before we dive into some of that, you know, I mean, North Carolina is, is when you talk to Democratic operatives, there's this a really interesting debate that emerges because there are a class of them who I think some of them have been through this before where they see North Carolina and they've been told that North Carolina is going to turn blue and that it hasn't worked out in successive elections. And some of them, even when I talk to them about it today, roll their eyes and consider it a secondary battleground. It's not where the real fight's going to be. We've been down this before. Fool me once and don't think of it quite as seriously as they do Wisconsin. There is an entire separate group, though. Who I would say really look at it as almost an underrated target right now that because it didn't have a statewide race in, in 2018, it didn't get the kind of hype that we see in a place like Arizona, for example, where a Democratic Senate candidate was able to win. It really showed that there was a path for Democratic candidates there. And subsequently, Arizona really is considered a top tier battleground alongside Florida and Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. So they they actually think that because of that reason, it's a thunder. And they will also point out that look, even as Hillary Clinton was losing the state in 2016, relative to the national margin, North Carolina actually improved. That you actually saw it, there was a huge swing from 2012 to 2016 in places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan for Hillary Clinton, the bottom just dropped out there. She performed worse in North Carolina than Obama did in 2012, but by a, a smaller margin. Actually, and that was because some of the demographics are becoming more favorable to Democrats. So they do see it as an opportunity. And they also just see it, frankly, as an opportunity. Like we discussed at the beginning of the show, that if Democrats win there, the election's over. This is where we can pin Trump down. If he has to compete hard here and, and, and even if he ekes out a victory, then odds are we're likely winning these other five battlegrounds and, and we're going to win the presidency. And that's, that's what it's all about. Murph, I, I just real, real quick. I mean, Part of, again, why North Carolina is so interesting as a state, I mean, this is the, the the testing ground for Democrats, right, that if they want to increase African-American turnout, if they want to keep their margins with suburban voters or suburban women, it has to happen in a place like North Carolina. There are so many groups in that state that will be indicative of how the race goes nationally. And if Republicans are able to to do well with those voters, it suggests that they're gonna do well in a lot of different places.
2: Right, I, I think it's a symbol of, of what's happening around the country. But I, I think one underrated aspect of North Carolina that we have not mentioned, and one reason Democrats are willing to compete so hard on the presidential level, even if they don't win, even if if Trump is able to eke out a victory, is that the down-ballot races matter so much in North Carolina. The The Senate race, Could well determine who holds the control of the US Senate. Senate race between incumbent Republican Tom Tillis and Democratic challenger Cal Cunningham. Roy Cooper is up for a gubernatorial election in North Carolina. I think some people see it as even if they lose the presidential race, the the resources that they put into North Carolina are going to help in the Cunningham race and the Cooper race. And so it's worth fighting tooth and nail for every vote in North Carolina because a vote for for Joe Biden is probably a vote for the Democrat for U.S. Senate and the Democratic governor. The, the Senate race is considered a toss-up. The gubernatorial race has actually moved. Virginia's Center for Politics has moved it from lean Democrat to likely Democrat because Cooper has seen such a bounce from the coronavirus pandemic. He's leading by 15 to 20 points in a, in a whole host of polls in North Carolina. But I think the Senate race makes all those presidential dollars and presidential attention matter that much more. Democrats are willing, even if it is the sixth out of six states on the battleground map for the presidency, it's higher than that on the Senate battleground map. And so every dollar you spend trying to win votes for the president, I think they see as, as also dollars they're trying to win for the Senate.
0: Yeah, and and to be clear, I mean, North Carolina is almost universally seen as the tipping point state and the battle for the control of the Senate majority. If they were to win the presidency, at least, they would need the net three seats to get to the 50-50 margin, and presumably whoever the vice president is can cast a tie-breaking vote, and they can control the Senate. They think that they have good opportunities in, in Arizona, Colorado, and Maine. Now, the reason that they need that fourth is because they're also defending a seat in Alabama with Doug Jones, who, of course, beat Roy Moore earlier in, in Donald Trump's presidency. And that is by and large considered a seat that Republicans are once again going to win in 2020 because, after all, it is Alabama. And Doug Jones does not get to run against Roy Moore again. So they need to the win four. And a lot of people see the Tom Tillis race against Cal Cunningham as as that tipping point state. Francesca, how how concerned do you think Republicans are about Tillis is standing. How cognizant do you think the Trump campaign is about not just defending North Carolina, but defending that Senate seat?
1: I don't know that they're there yet. You know, Mm -hmm. when it comes down to the down ballot races, because there are some other there are some other deadlines that are coming up. This month, for instance, like the Kansas Senate race, the filing deadline for that is June 1st. So, so that's like an immediate concern for them. There are other, there are other battles playing out in other primaries, right? You mentioned Alabama. There's the Jeff Session situation. And so I get the sense that their immediate concern is, of course, coronavirus, number one. But the president has started to make some more political endorsements. He likes to, to tweet them out. If anything, I think you would first see. Him start to weigh in in some of these other primary battles that are taking place within the the GOP, and I say if anything, because many people I've spoken to or close to the president really just don't know until he tweets sometimes, like <laughs> what he's going to say about about any of these candidates. Is the are,
0: management style in the White House a little chaotic sometimes? Is that <laughs> what you're suggesting? So
1: it is hard to make predictions about. Even if he supports him privately, if he's going to come out publicly and say what he thinks about any of these Senate races and these situations. But I would say that there are immediate concerns with these filing deadlines that are coming up in GOP primaries.
2: And Trump has endorsed Tillis. You know, he, he endorsed them earlier in the process. Tillis has sort of tied himself in many ways to Trump. And so their fortunes are very much tied together, I think, when it comes to North Carolina.
1: McClatchy's Washington, D.C. Bureau is tracking the best election reporting from beyond the bubble in a new daily newsletter. Get the Impact 2020 newsletter in your inbox weekdays at 4 p.m. by signing up at impact2020.com briefing.
0: Francesca, let's stay with the topic of Trump and his poll numbers right now. Murph alluded to it earlier that if you look nationally right now, Trump's standing is, is is sagging. His head-to-head matchups with, with Joe Biden, his numbers are sinking a little bit. Just as an example, a Monmouth University poll that a month ago showed him within four points of Joe Biden, right in line potentially with what he would need, even if he's trailing, to win the Electoral College again, showed him down nine points in a survey released yesterday. We have seen the concern and, and news stories from uh, allegedly even his own re-election campaign showing that his standing was diminishing, that he had damaged himself with his daily White House briefings that usually went wildly off topic or had wild tangents, or he suggested that people should inject bleach into their system to cure themselves of coronavirus. And so I, I'm curious when you when you talk with Republicans, either directly connected to the campaign or not, How much concern is there, or is there reason to think that this is just May and we still don't know how people are ultimately going to process the politics of everything that's happening with the pandemic?
1: It's the latter, but it's built on more than just the pandemic and coronavirus. Mm -hmm. There is a strong belief by Republicans inside, outside of Washington, close to Trump or not, that the polling is just wrong and that... As we get closer, you know, the polls will completely change. I can't tell you how many people have told me you know, if Hillary Clinton and the polling were correct, then she would be president right now. I mean, like that is literally their line for every poll that Donald Trump is not doing well in. It's like, oh, the polling had Hillary Clinton winning in 2016. Look how that turned out for him. So I'm not saying that's a an entirely valid theory, but that is literally what Republicans say in response to the polling. And, and you've seen the president himself address this too. I mean, he, he just doesn't see it happening. I mean, he just does not believe the polling. So they also think that people, when they're called, might not want to say nice things about Donald Trump. Maybe they're ashamed to, to support him for various reasons. I don't know that there's any real evidence to show that that is what's happening here, but that is their explanation for why people would claim that they're doing one thing and then then the privacy of the ballot box would do another thing. But you can also see within the White House that there is the concern that you talked about because ever since those polls came out in Florida and other battleground states that we've been discussing, they stopped doing the daily coronavirus press briefings. He completely stopped having them. <laughs> he he had one more after the disinfectant day and he didn't take questions at all on that day. Gave a statement left. And then he hasn't had another one of those. He had a news conference in the Rose Garden. He's taking questions from reporters in the Oval Office like he was always doing before. All of that. But he hasn't had another one in the briefing room like that. So that does suggest that... He is listening to advisors who say that these were getting to a point where they were going on for hours and they were leaving him too exposed, and he has therefore changed the behavior.
2: I think Senator Tillis, to to get to your question, Alex, and expound upon what Francesco was saying, Senator Tillis, I think in some ways laid out the GOP plan yesterday in an interview I saw that he did with Politico. He said that by August, all of this is going to be different, that we'll be doing millions and millions of tests that the economy will start to be showing signs of rebound and that voters are gonna change their impression of Trump and how he's handled coronavirus by by August. And and that will have benefit to, to these senators that are trying to hold these Republican seats. I, I think that was one of the more honest versions, I think of how Republicans think this is going to play out that if we can get through daily death totals of 2,000 to 3,000 people, if we can up the testing and and the economy starts to rebound, that Republicans will see that rebound come in the polls as well.
0: I'm trying to think through this myself. And look, there was another spate of polling that came out yesterday, even in some Senate races that didn't look great for the GOP um, it's in, in some marquee races. And there are method, methodological questions like there always are, particularly in, in public polls, the Senate races. But you, know, you, you start to think that this isn't really that complicated, right? That The economy is bad. Trump is in the White House. People will blame him. And because of that, they'll blame him and the GOP for the fact that things are bad in America and they're going to vote Democrat. And a lot of times in our politics, it really is that simple. In fact, most of the time in our politics, almost all the time in our politics, it really is just that simple. But what Tillis outlined, I think, is why I'm a little cautious, because we don't know. Look, people I don't think at their core are going to blame Donald Trump for the virus. Of course they're not. Now, they could blame him for the response, and a lot of polls suggest that they think, for instance, that he was far too slow in responding to this. But if we get to a situation where public perception changes about the virus as summer begins to wind down and the general election really takes takes center stage, that those perceptions could change wildly. I, no, look, I, I mean, beyond that, it is almost impossible to predict. We don't know what state the economy is going to be in. Unfortunately, it does not look like it's going to be in a good place at, at all. And that is usually the thing that, that more than anything else knocks off presidential candidates, but it's an impossibly fluid situation to predict. And I, and I take it just talking with both of you right now, it doesn't sound as if GOP strategists and the like are on the ledge right now, that there is still some optimism that November could turn out okay for their party.
2: Yeah, I think Trump is testing the themes right now, but this whole theory that I built the greatest economy in American history, and now I just have to do it again because of this evil invading force, invisible enemy that came from China. I mean, I don't think that the themes of this election are, are really hard to see, even at this point. I think Trump is going to run on his economic record before the virus and say that it's going to take someone like me to turn it a- around again. And now all that depends on the virus, you know, cooperating in some ways and and being under control come October and and early November. And I think there's going to be a a lot of blaming of China. And and that seems to be, at least if you read the quotes from from Senator Tillis and and you see sort of the general direction, I think, that the White House is going, that seems to be the theme. Let's get through the the worst of the virus and we'll start to see the economy come back. And then Trump can make the case that, hey, I built the economy once, I'll, I'll do it again.
1: Can I just jump in there for a second? Yeah,
0: please. I was going to ask if you agree with that.
1: (laughs) So I 100% agree with you on the economic economic front and what they're pushing. And this is a really, really important argument because the other thing that the White House is looking at now is the coronavirus packages that have been making their way through Congress. So there is one that's under consideration now, a phase four, and the White House has said that they're taking a pause for a couple of weeks while they decide what they would like to see in it. And Larry Kudlow has talked about how they would like to see tax breaks and incentives for businesses in the next stimulus package, because they do believe that stimulating the economy, you know, get, getting the, the cash flow running again, it's not just reopening and getting people back to work, but it's a sustained economic argument. They want to see that, right, that recovery happen ideally before the election for many reasons, but just taking the political one for a second so that they can say, see, look, and he's doing it now, because it is more difficult to say, Look, I promise if you reelect him, he'll do it after the election, I swear. But, you know They wanna jumpstart that already. I do
2: wonder, and, and this is, a, sorry I'm stealing your hosting duties here, Alex, but- I,
0: We're gonna um, talk about it after the show, Murph, but, but continue.
1: <laughs> and I'm
2: gonna bring it back to North Carolina. It, you know, Trump certainly was running on a theme of trying to get some African-American support, trying to win Hispanics, uh, win some of these groups, if not win them, at least cut down the margins as a way of improving his status. Uh, In North Carolina, at least, uh, you know, African-Americans are being impacted, at least due to deaths from the coronavirus, at about twice their rate of population. I've read today earlier that Hispanics are losing their jobs much more frequently than than whites are. I, I do wonder if the virus is interacting in some different ways, some kind of unforeseen ways with the election. Trump has made a big big push to to win more African American votes uh to show that he cares about that community and I just wonder if the virus is having some some effects that we're not even really thinking about when it comes to African American support or Hispanic support because of the way oh, right. where-
1: Oh, Brian, I've been thinking. about <laughs> it. <laughs>
2: it's
0: just, we've, been <laughs> we've been talking about it. it. About it.
1: We, we did do a lot on this a couple of weeks ago, and I continue to be interested in this. I asked at the White House press briefing this week about what it is that the White House is actually doing to target minority communities to stop the spread. You know, and they have done some things and certainly will continue to report on that.
2: Yeah. And I don't mean we're not reporting. I just mean that there's some interesting intersections with, with electoral politics. I think that we'll, we'll have to consider as we move forward. But yeah, certainly I know Francesca's on top of it.
0: As we discussed on the show, I mean, there are, like you said, there are some fascinating dynamics between some of my own reporting that shows that young men of color, including young African-American men are more open to Donald Trump or at least were before this pandemic began in a way that alarms really alarms some Democrats, but at the same time I mean, this is a a crisis that has disproportionately afflicted the African-American community. And there has been a lot of criticism, including from some conservative African-Americans, that Donald Trump and his administration have not done enough on that. Um, So it is a subject that I'm just going to guess is going to come up on the show a couple (laughs) more times for the election. Okay, Uh, before we head out, it is time for what is my favorite segment every week, where Brian and Francesca are going to tell us something fresh, new or original from their reporting notebook. Brian, you're a first. As a first time guest on the show, it's your honor, sir.
2: I appreciate it. As we first reported at the News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer, there's a new lawsuit in North Carolina by some Democrat. It's by voters, but, but backed by Democratic groups that want to make voting by mail easier. And they would, the changes would include prepaid postage on, on mail-in ballots. It would include no more witness signatures needed as we deal with the coronavirus and, and letting witnesses into your house. It would extend the deadline to receive ballots till nine days after election day, like it is for military ballots. That is interesting in and of itself. And, and that's happening in states all across the country where Democrats are trying to ease some of the burdens on vote by mail. Just yesterday, Louis DeJoy, who is a North Carolina businessman, huge Trump donor, was named Postmaster General. And so some Democrats are already worried that if voting by mail is supposed to increase from 5% in North Carolina to 40% in North Carolina, but suddenly a very staunch Trump ally is running the Postal Service and the Postal Service is struggling financially, what that all means put in combination. And so I think that the Postal Service and the U- United States Postal Service, the post office, all of that is going to become a, a major issue as we move forward. Strong, Murph,
0: strong opening effort from you. Not just with that <laughs> detail, you. but in the whole episode, I would say, you know, good, good job. It's almost like you have some experience doing radio. <laughs> I appreciate it. Francesca, what do you got?
1: All right. So if you look at post coronavirus briefings, as we just were, I want to expand on that point a little bit more the president has since started to have a parade of governors who've been coming through. It started with New York's governor, Cuomo, then he moved to DeSantis and now it's just a governor a day. And that's coming through the white house. But there is one governor who has not made an appearance that I don't think we're going to see make an appearance anytime soon. And that would be governor Brian Kemp. Now I won't again, get too much into Georgia, but I will note that this has become an opportunity for governors who some of them want to be seen with the president to, to come up to Washington and have that opportunity. But it's just as much of an opportunity for the White House as well to be able to have the president sitting next to governors on camera. It certainly looks presidential, as you might say, taking questions about what the federal government has done to, to help the states, particularly in some of the areas that could be battlegrounds, that could be part of the reason why he's having certain certain governors as part of a strategy. But again, it can be used as an incentive. It can be used as a reward for certain governors, and it can also be used to send a message with governors that he's feuding with who are almost certainly, like Jay Inslee, not going to be invited.
0: You know, Francesca, I'm starting to think that we have an edict against Adam Ballner mentioning Wisconsin in every podcast, (laughs) and we might have to have a similar rule for you in Georgia. Not that that wasn't a great detail to share with the listeners, but it's just something to think about uh, in, in, in the future.
1: I also mentioned Florida, got some Florida in there. Got that's true. Washington, Inslee. That's
0: true, that's true. Maybe I'm being too harsh.
2: And the, and the governors are super popular. I mean, you look at what the ratings have done for Roy Cooper in North Carolina. Of course, you know, that, that's a great opportunity for Trump to be seen with people who are maybe the most popular politician in, in every state.
1: With the battleground okay. theory though, Brian, to tie it all back in, I wonder if we'll see Governor Cooper at
2: the White House soon. Yeah, as a De- I know that Trump has invited other Democrats. I'm not sure that would sit that well with some Republicans in North Carolina who are trying to unseat Roy Cooper and uh, have been, you know, trying to downplay the job that he's done in the state, trying to to poke holes in. <laughs> North Carolina, unlike a lot of the other Southern states, has not yet reopened. It's supposed to move into Phase One tomorrow at 5 p.m. Friday, um, May 8th at 5 p.m. and and Phase One is very limited, so. Uh, There are some Republicans unhappy with the slow pace of reopening North Carolina.
1: See, Alex, I had a plan.
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I shouldn't have died of you, Francesca. Mine, I will be quick about it, 17%. That is the percent of votes of her total vote share in 2016 that Hillary Clinton wasted, quote unquote, wasted in the 2016 election. That's according to a new study from the center-left think tank Third Way, basically when they say that she wasted votes. It's any time a vote was cast in excess of what was necessary to, to win a state in 2016. In English, that just means she ran up to score in places like California, Illinois, New York State, where she won these huge margins of votes that helped with her national popular vote. But of course... didn't help her win the electoral college. That 17% figure is extraordinarily high. They compared it to even Donald Trump was 13.3%. If you compare it to George W. Bush or even John Kerry, that's in the 10, 11, 12% range for most of those candidates is an extraordinarily high share. And it was just their their overall point and making that and releasing that study was just that look, these these polls that show national leads for, for Joe Biden over Donald Trump, just remember that he needs you know, a one or two point majority likely isn't going to be enough for Joe Biden. It's all about the Electoral College, a lesson I think a lot of Democrats learned the hard way in 2016. Third way, trying to remind them that that dynamic still exists in 2020 is something they need to be cautious and wary about. OK, Brian and Francesca, thank you so much for coming on the show. You guys were both great today.
2: You were, you were great, too. You were great, too. I'm glad I beat Francesca to that compliment.
0: <laughs> Murph, maybe we'll have you back now. I don't, I don't know. We'll talk about <laughs> it after the show. I want to thank our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. Talk to you next week.